We come this morning in our study of the book of Romans to Romans chapter 10. Please turn there. I would like us to read several verses of Romans chapter 10 to to provide the background for the sermon, but also to set the context for the passage that we'll study this morning. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. It's important to appreciate that the Apostle Paul is himself a Jewish man converted to believe the gospel, and it is with a concern for his kinsmen, for his fellow Jews, that he writes, and that kinship colors much of what is written in chapter 9 and 10 and 11. Brethren, my heart's desire and my supplication to God is for them, that is for the Jews, that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to every one that believes. For Moses writeth that the man that doeth the righteousness which is in the law shall live thereby. But the righteousness which is, which is of faith saith thus, Say not in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who shall descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what says it? It says the word is nigh thee in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, and is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Even as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of good things. Let me just take a few moments to review what we've been studying, and then we'll come, God willing, to study this morning chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. In this section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is addressing the subject of the, God's relationship to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and he's taken up this concern, this seeming contradiction, the concern that arises from this seeming contradiction, if on the one hand God has blessed the Jewish nation with exceedingly large blessings, how can it be on the other hand that they have become apostate and do not believe the gospel? In much of chapter 9, he answers that question by reference to the divine perspective in much of chapter 9, he answers that question by drawing attention to God's eternal plans according to election. The fact that some of the Jews, that, I'm sorry, the fact that most of the Jews are hardened and do not believe, and the fact that only some believe, in the first place, Paul says, is because of God's purposes in election. Having addressed the issue from the divine standpoint, then toward the end of chapter 9, he addresses the same issue from the human standpoint. If they have been given such huge blessings and if they are largely apostate, how can it be? The second answer is, from the human perspective, it is because they have rejected salvation by grace, they have stumbled at Christ, and they have chosen to maintain their misconceptions of salvation by works. From the human standpoint, that's the reason that they are apostate and only a few believe. They have chosen to hold a method of salvation, which is that you work and you go to heaven, and they have refused that method of salvation, which is based on grace and received through faith and bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've considered that already. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 5, 
the apostle begins to deal with this subject in, in some details. He does three things in these verses. Number one, he gives a contrast between that method of salvation that is based upon works and that method of salvation that is based upon grace, a contrast. The second thing that he does is he gives support for the biblical method of salvation by grace. And the third thing he does is he makes a specific application of the fact that salvation is by grace. Now, last time we looked at the first. We looked at the contrast. You remember verse 5, Moses says, and then verse 6, but the righteousness which is by faith says. The contrast between the two. The contrast is simple. The law says, do this and live. You remember the three alls. All the law, all the heart, all the time. If you keep all of the law with all of your soul at every second of the day, the law says you'll live. That's in contrast. Verse 6 makes a contrast, but the righteousness which is of faith says, and Paul uses those idioms. Remember in the first place, trying to put our own uh, outline upon Paul's uh, large thoughts, he says in the first place, he says, he says, salvation, which is based upon grace through faith in the first place, does not say to do the impossible. It doesn't say, who's going to go to heaven to bring down a Savior? Or who's going to go down into the depths to bring up a Savior? Salvation by grace doesn't ask you to do the impossible. The second thing is, it says it asks you to do that which is near unto you, which is in your mouth. It says, salvation by grace asks you to do that which is possible, which is right before you. You don't have to have some unusual uh, opportunity or lineage or initiation. What you're asked to do by grace is right before you, even the word which we preach. And then the third thing, what, is, what does salvation by grace say? It says you don't have to do the impossible. It says that you do do what's right before you. And it says specifically then what? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. The law says, do this and you'll live. The gospel says, confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you'll be saved apart from your works. So that's the contrast that Paul lays out and that's what we studied last time. Now the second thing that he does is he gives support for the gospel method of salvation. He gives that support in beginning in verse 11. He has, made his, he has made the contrast beginning in verse 10, and he says in verse 11, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, and is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what Paul gives in those verses is in rapid fire some very crisp and concise statements which support his contention that we are justified through faith on the basis of grace. Now let us quickly look at these supporting statements that he makes. The first is to draw our minds to the Old Testament scriptures. In chapter 10, verse 11, it says, The scripture says, and then he quotes a passage from Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. He's already quoted Isaiah 28, 16 in chapter 9 and verse 33. Paul appeals to the Old Testament to establish that what he's saying is nothing new. He's saying that salvation is not to be had through works. Salvation is not to be had through obedience to the law. He doesn't want anyone to think he's coming up with a new idea. He wants everyone to know this is supported by the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament idea that we shall be saved through faith. If we believe in him, Isaiah said, we will never be put to shame. If we believe in him, we shall be forgiven. If we believe in him, we, we shall be saved. And Paul's simple point is to, is to declare that I am not coming up with my own ideas. This is what the Old Testament itself already says. Now, he has already done that. Paul has done that several times in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3 in particular, and then in chapter 4, he has established that salvation is through faith and not through works. And then he goes to the Old Testament to prove. Remember, most of chapter 4 is given to looking at the life of Abraham, that Abraham was justified on the basis of faith, not on the basis of works. So that's the first support, that salvation is through faith on the basis of grace. The Old Testament said it would be that way. 
The second support that he gives is that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now think about that. What does he mean? There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Look at what he says. Verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now you know that there are some distinctions between the Jew and the Greek. He has mentioned some of those distinctions already. There are some distinctions. The Jews did have greater privileges in some ways than the Greeks. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the types and shadows. They had many things that should be considered privileges, and so there were some differences. But there were no distinctions between the Jews and the Greeks in some very vital areas, vital areas that Paul has already specified. They were the same in these two areas. Number one, they were the same. The Jews and the Greeks were the same in terms of being condemned by God's law. Now look back, please, at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? The we is the Jews, the they is the Gentiles. Are we Jews better than those Gentiles? No, in no wise. For we before laid to the charge both of Jews and Greeks that they all are under sin. Verse 19 and 20 is to the same effect. Jews and Greeks and the whole world, every individual in the world will stand before God's law. No one will be justified by that law. Everyone will have disobeyed it. The law will pronounce condemnation upon everyone. Everyone's the same, Jew and Greek, in that regard. There is another way in which they are the same, and that is they were the same in terms of the means of salvation. God would save the Jew and save the Gentile in exactly the same way. There would be no difference, no distinction in the way that he would save them. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. One means of salvation, the gospel. One duty required, faith, and all the dimensions of faith as is, as is expressed in various parts of the Bible. But it's the same for Jew as for Gentile. Look in chapter 3 again, verse 21. Paul has just made the point that Jew and Gentile are the same in terms of condemnation. Now he says they're the same in this regard. Verse 21, But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, unto all them that believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the two things brought together. They're all the same. Everybody's sinned. Everybody has fallen short of the mark. Nobody is what they ought to be. They're all the same, the Jews and the Gentiles. But they're also all the same in this, that to all of them, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is offered. Same offer, same requirements. There's no distinction in terms of them all being universally condemned. And there's no distinction in terms of them all being offered the same gospel and in terms of them all being called upon to do the same thing. All the Jews and the Gentiles are called upon to believe, to confess Jesus as Lord, and so forth. The method of salvation that depends upon works assumes distinctions. It assumes that there are some that have the law and can do it and will do it, and others that cannot. But the gospel method of salvation assumes sameness. Everybody's equally condemned. And everybody has the equal opportunities in the gospel. There's a third line of support that is given for this gospel method of salvation, and that is that, the, that there is one Lord over both who is rich in mercy to all that call upon him. Look at that phrase again back in chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verse 12. For the same Lord is Lord of all, and is rich unto all them that call upon him. There's one Lord. That was something that the Jews had a very difficult time coming to grips with, that Messiah would equally be the Lord of the Gentiles as well as of the Jews. They were looking for a distinctively Jewish Messiah who would, who would set up a distinctively Jewish kingdom. 
and those that would partake in that kingdom would themselves be, become proselytes and would become Jewish. Paul says, no, no. One Lord, the same Lord of all, who is rich in mercy to all that call upon him. And the emphasis there seems to be simply that he is so large in mercy that no matter how diverse or how large the people are, the, the number of people are that come to him, there is no possibility of his riches being exhausted. He can be merciful to everyone and to anyone that comes to him. He is eager and able to save the moral Jew who is trembling at the rabbi's teachings of the law. And he is eager and able to save the pagan prostitute who comes. He is rich to all. There need be no qualification. There need, there, he is rich to all that would come to him. And notice it says he is rich to all that call upon him, according to verse 12. He is rich unto all that call upon him. What does this mean? That he's rich to all that call upon him. Now think carefully. What does this mean? Many people use this as a text for evangelism. And they will tell somebody that if you just pray, if you just ask the Lord to forgive you, if you just tell him, if you just say, I'm confessing you as Lord and I'm telling you that I believe that you have raised him from the dead, if you just call, if you just pray, that the Lord will save you. And they go to this passage as proof of that. Is that what it means? Is that what the passage means? Is the passage saying, if you'll just pray, you'll be saved? Well, if it meant that, it would be in contradiction with what Paul has just said immediately. Paul did not say that what you need to do to be saved is pray. Paul said what you need to do to be saved is to confess Jesus as Lord to submit to him in obedience in all the areas of your life and to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Now, prayer will surely be a response to that, but the focus is not upon praying. When Paul says what you have to do, you have to openly acknowledge Jesus as Lord with your mouth, not in the private theater of your heart, in the open declarations of your lips and in the private arena of your heart, you have to believe that Jesus has raised him from the dead. So when he says down here later that he will save all that call upon him, it must not be, we must not believe that Paul has changed his grounds here. He must, that's not the point. The idea of calling upon the Lord is a phrase that in, in biblical terminology refers to something much more than simply saying prayers. Calling upon the Lord in biblical terminology refers to worshiping God, a worship in God that requires believing in him, which of course is, is central to Paul's concerns here, but it refers to a worshiping of God, especially in sincere prayers and in sincere supplications and in, in, in sincere submissions. You have an interesting statement in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26. You remember that God formed Adam and Eve and they sinned and their sons sinned and sin ruled in the earth. And then God caused them to bear a son named Seth. And Seth began to be, became the father of those who loved God. And it says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enoch. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. doesn't merely mean that men began to pray. It means that men began to be worshipers of God. It meant that men loved God, sought God, pleased God, worshipped God. They called upon the name of the Lord. You read of this phrase all throughout the Old Testament and it refers, it refers to that larger aspect of devotion to God, of worship to God, specifically in prayers, but never just to a moment, a momentary ejaculation of thought up to God, as some people would use this text to say. It's not that everybody who makes a sincere prayer is therefore going to be saved. Everybody that confesses Jesus as their personal Lord, everyone that believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, everyone that therefore begins to be a caller upon the Lord's name, such people are promised to be saved. But the point of this section is not to be discriminating. The point of this section is to declare that everyone that does so, everyone that does so, 
will be richly rewarded because the Lord Jesus is rich in mercy to everyone that does this. Whatever your background, whatever your current state, no matter how ashamed you are, no matter how great your sins are, no matter how, how much you think you could not be forgiven, everyone that comes to the Lord in this way will receive rich mercy, abundant mercy. And then in the fourth, the fourth line of support is again from the Old Testament. This is where he quotes from Joel chapter 2 and verse 32. Look at the passage, please, in verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again quoting from the Old Testament, again determined to show that he is not bringing a new thing. Now, Paul, in the next several verses, is going to make an important implication from all of this. And I would like us to look at that. But before we look at it, I'd like to look at some implications that he doesn't make. And so we won't spend much time on them because I don't want to distract us from Paul's thought. But there are a couple of implications that lie right on the surface of these verses that I would not like us to miss before we go on to Paul's concern. One of those implications is, as I trust is obvious to all of us, that the gospel method of justification offers hope to everyone who wants salvation. The works method of justification doesn't. The works method of justification doesn't offer hope to everyone. You have to be pretty arrogant to even to even have any thoughts of earning your own salvation. You have to have a pretty high view of yourself and of your ability to be consistent, your ability to keep all the rules. Salvation is based upon how much you please God doesn't offer any hope because anybody that's serious knows they don't please God. All you have to do is look at your thought life. But the gospel method of salvation offers hope to everyone that wants it, to everyone that wants it. There's no distinction whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're moral or pagan. There's, the Lord is rich to all that call upon him. All people deal with God on an even field, on an even playing field. No prejudices. All people deal with God on the same terms. Again, what I said before, the moral Jew, the pagan Gentile, they all deal with God on the same terms. The moral philanthropist, the most immoral pervert, they all deal with God on the same grounds. They all deal with God on the basis of mercy. They all deal with God on the basis of grace. They all deal with God on the basis of an absolute cleansing, not on the basis of how well they perform, not on the basis of how religious they can make themselves, purely on the basis of grace. There is hope for everyone. It would be interesting it would be inappropriate and probably unedifying, but it would be interesting to know the state of everyone that comes into this place on the Sunday morning, to know the weight of guilt that everyone bears, to know the things that we're ashamed of, to know the things that would make us run if they were run away if they were somehow splashed on a screen for everyone to see. Some people are so overwhelmed with a sense of their guilt and their shame and the things that are wrong with them and the ways they've never been able to make themselves right that they really begin to believe that, that they could never become Christians. They could never reform themselves well enough for God to accept them. What do they do when they think that way? They've missed the whole point of the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace doesn't require you to reform yourself so you can be pleasing to God. The gospel of grace will come and take a hold of you and it will change you. But the gospel of grace doesn't require you to change yourself so that you become acceptable to God. You'll never make it. The gospel of grace just says, come, just believe, acknowledge Jesus to be your Lord, give yourself up to him, accept the scriptures, and you'll be saved. Not on the basis of work. There is tremendous hope offered to everyone that would want to be a Christian on the basis of the gospel of grace. There's a second implication, and that is that the gospel of, of justification the gospel method of justification offers certainty of salvation to everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord. Certainty of salvation. If you're outside of Christ, it offers you hope. But if you have believed the gospel, then the gospel method of justification offers you certainty. Notice the language of these verses. Thou shalt not be put to shame, is rich unto all who calls. Whosoever calls shall be saved. There's no idea of potentiality. 
There's no idea of, of possibly you'll be saved. There's no idea that if you do these things, you'll get on the track, but who knows what's going to happen later. There's certainty involved in this language. Why is there certainty? Well, it's because of the context of this passage. It's because salvation is not on the basis of works. If salvation were on the basis of works, there'd be no certainty. Let's say that a miracle happened to you and you were born and you never, you never cried sinfully. You never coveted. You never lied as a child. You, you never had anything wrong at all in your, in your words, in your mind. Just, you were perfect from the womb. And you got to be about 14 years old and somebody came to you with the gospel and it was wonderful that you've been perfect up till now, but now that restraining grace that's kept you perfect is going to let you go. And you're going to have the choice to sin and be lost and go to hell or you're going to have the choice to obey God perfectly and go to heaven just like you've been doing for these 13 years, 14 years. Well, just imagine that that could happen. Would there be any basis for security? Wouldn't you every moment be thinking, Oh, oh, this thought came into my mind and I, I stopped that thought just in time, but maybe that thought got to be too close to the, to the transgression. How could there be any certainty if salvation were based upon works? Absolutely none. That's the point, though. Paul is arguing and supporting the truth that salvation is not based upon what we do. Salvation is based upon what? Salvation is based upon grace. Salvation is based upon the work of the Lord Jesus. Salvation is based upon the fact that our sins have been placed upon him and he has taken their guilt and he has taken their punishment. Salvation, more specifically in the larger context of this passage, is based upon the fact that Jesus' perfect life, his perfect obedience to all the details of the law, that that has been given to us so that when we stand before God with all of our faults and all of our inconsistencies and all of our disobedience and all of our lack of faith that in the judgment the focus will be upon Jesus' perfect righteousness not upon everything that's covered by the blood. There's security in that. There's certainty that we will be saved. Why? Because everything is based upon Jesus. Because we have a salvation that is based upon Jesus and received through faith. Not a salvation that is based upon our performance, but a salvation that is based upon Jesus' performance. There's certainty. They shall be saved who believe. And some in this room need to let their souls flood with comfort that everything hangs upon Jesus. Everything hangs upon his work, and it's perfect. You have no reason to fear. They shall be saved. They shall be saved, every one of them that accept this biblical method of justification. So now we've considered two things so far, last Lord's Day morning and this morning. The first was the contrast between the gospel method of justification and the law. The second thing that we've considered now are these supports which the apostle gave to prove the gospel method of justification through faith. And now let us come to the third part of Paul's presentation, which is the an implication of the gospel method of justification. There obviously are many implications. He's making a specific implication that we must appreciate. What is Paul's implication that he draws from this prolonged argument concerning the fact that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by faith? In verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul makes a series of deductions that series of deductions ends with the necessity of preachers being sent. Now look at it. Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent even as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of good things. Paul's argument is something like this. If it is necessary that men call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved, then several things are necessary. If it is necessary that men call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, then other things are necessary as well. And these are those things. Men must believe, he says, if they are to call. Number two, he says they must hear Christ if they are to believe. 
Number three, he says they must have preachers if they are to hear Christ. And number four, someone must send those preachers if those preachers would preach and they're to hear Christ and they're to believe and thus to call upon his name. It's a rather obvious syllogism, but the points of it are easily misunderstood. And I think it's important that we consider them because Paul himself makes a large issue of this. If men are to call upon the name of the Lord, a miracle must happen. If men are to call upon the name of the Lord, they must hear Christ. And if men are to hear Christ, they must hear preachers. And if men are to have preachers, somebody needs to send those preachers. Now let's look at the details of that syllogism. In the first place, and we'll not take up everything, but the first thing that I'd like us to consider, they must hear Christ. Christ must speak to them. Now look again at verse 14. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? It doesn't say how shall they believe about whom they have not heard. The idea is not here's some person in the darkest corner of the world never heard about the Lord Jesus. Some preacher needs to go to him and tell him about the Lord Jesus because he doesn't know about the Lord Jesus. And once you've told him about the Lord Jesus, then he can believe. That's not what this passage says. It's not that they have to hear about the Lord Jesus. It is they have to hear the Lord Jesus. That he has to speak to them. He has to communicate with them. Something has to take place that is far beyond the realm of just human communications where a preacher goes, a human being goes and talks to another human being, and they're saved. There's to be a divine element of mystery and supernaturalism that takes place if somebody is ever to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and believe. And in this place, Paul refers to that as hearing him whom they believe. Now, remember we talked about this idea some weeks ago when we were studying the passage in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 where Jesus said that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We talked about how, of course, when he walked upon the face of the earth, that in a physical and bodily sense, he did that. He went around physically and bodily. He found people. He sought them. He got to them. He spoke to them. And in the midst of that speaking to them, God gave them life to believe. And we tried to make the point last time that that very thing which Jesus did bodily and physically when he was upon the face of the earth, he still does. He still does, though he is not bodily and physically with us. Some of the passages that we referred to are these. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, in reference to Jesus, it says, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. As a general statement. The point of the general statement, though, is that Jesus, in his exaltation in heaven, is not functioning merely as the object of adoration. He is not functioning merely as our advocate. He is functioning in order to give forgiveness and to give repentance to his people. He is still ministering in such a way as to go to lost people who don't believe, who aren't forgiven, who aren't repentant. He's still actively himself going to people to give them repentance and to give them forgiveness. Look at these passages, please, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2... Verse 14, For he is our peace, who made both one and broke down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he might create in himself of the two one new man, so making peace, and might reconcile them both to one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now, before we read verse 17, just notice what's obvious. It's talking about the work of the Lord Jesus in redemption. The Lord Jesus, by his death on the cross, has slain the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile, that they would be reconciled to each other and reconciled to God. Jesus did that. Then it says in verse 17, And he came, referring to Jesus, And he came and preached peace to you that were far off, and, pre and, and peace to them that were nigh. For through him we both have our access in one spirit unto the Father. 
Paul is referring to two things that Jesus did to effect this reconciliation. One thing he did upon the cross when he was present in his bodily, physical way. The other thing, though, he did after the cross. He did after the resurrection. He did, while he, was, he did it while he was enthroned in heaven. And what was it? He came and preached to the Ephesians. That's an amazing statement. He came and he preached to the Ephesians. Somewhere after the resurrection, after the ascension, after enthronement at the right hand of God, Jesus came to the Ephesians and preached to them. Now, Paul makes another reference to that in chapter 4. Not as plain, but nonetheless another reference. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, he's calling the saints in Ephesus to holiness. He says that they're not like the Gentiles who are alienated from God. Verse 20, but you did not so learn Christ. If so be that you heard him and were taught in him, even as the truth is in Jesus. Paul's very aware of this, that Jesus came and preached to them. They're not like the Gentiles if they heard him. If he did speak to them, then they're not like the Gentiles. Now, how did Jesus speak to them? How did Jesus do that? Did he come in a vision and gather together this bunch of people in the area of Ephesus and appear to them in the form of a vision and preach to them? Or did he come in a, in a bodily form that wasn't a vision? And did he really come back from heaven and stand before them and preach to them? Did he give them dreams? What did he do? Well, what did he do to Lydia in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14? It says there, in reference to Paul's preaching to the women that were gathered for prayer, it says there in Acts 16, 14, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken by Paul. What happened there? Paul went and preached to those women. The Lord was there too. And when Paul preached to those women, the Lord opened their hearts to understand and to believe the things that Paul said to them. Now keep all of that in your mind and come to our passage now in Romans chapter 10. The first thing is that these lost people to be converted, they must hear Christ. Just like the Ephesians heard Christ, just like Lydia heard Christ, they must hear Christ. We left the question unanswered. How did they do that? But however they do it, that's what Paul says. Before they can believe, which will lead to their calling upon him, they must hear him upon whom they're going to believe. So now we come to the second point is that they must hear preachers. Because it is in the context of hearing preachers that Jesus speaks to them. Look again at the passage. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear? Now again, it's not how shall they hear about him. The context is they must hear him whom they're going to believe upon. How shall they hear? The question is, how shall they hear Jesus? The answer is, they must have a preacher. How will they ever hear the voice of Jesus? How will Christ ever speak to them, is Paul's question. How will it happen unless they have preachers? Paul said of his own ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in the whole passage, verses 1 through 6, he sums it up by saying that we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and... God shines in the heart of the unbelieving to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul preached, God was there opening men's hearts. Paul preached, Jesus was active in that preaching, communicating his own mind and his own words and his own gospel to those who heard the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Paul spoke to Lydia. The Lord ministered to Lydia. Paul preached to the Ephesians. He preached Paul says, in reference to Jesus, to the Ephesians. If people are going to be saved, this come back now to Romans chapter 10, the gospel method of justification by faith. What are the implications? Well, if they're, going to have, if they're going to have faith, Jesus must talk to them. If the Lord's going to talk to them, preachers must talk to them because Jesus doesn't come in visions anymore. 
Jesus doesn't appear in theophanies anymore. Jesus doesn't come to us like he came to Paul and come in some blinding display of glory on the Damascus Road and knock us down and speak words which we hear with our ears. But Jesus still comes to us. We must still hear him. There must be that supernatural work of God communicating to us. But how will it be? Those of you that are not converted, you want to hear the voice of Jesus, how do you obtain it? Do you pray for a vision? Do you go to places where there are seances? No, you go to preachers. How shall they hear? How shall they hear Jesus? They'll hear Jesus in the context of preachers. Now, who are these preachers, according to this passage? And again, because of modern confusion and the abnormality of Christianity in our times, it's important that we appreciate the difference between the biblical statements and what we see all around us. Who are the preachers that this passage is talking about? The Greek word is kerusantos. That's who they are. Now you know, right? You can go home. Who are the preachers? Or you just say they're the kerusantos. The kerusantos are, are literally, it's a participle that literally refers to the ones who herald. It refers to an official proclaimer. The word was used in the Greek world to designate a public servant of the ruling authority who would take the ruler's words, the ruler's decisions, the ruler's ideas, and he was officially appointed to take those things and proclaim them, herald them. It is used to to refer to someone who spoke with official authority. Now, the king's ruling might be known. Everybody on the street's talking about it. Well, those people that are on the street talking about it are not called by this word because they're not official. They're not authoritative. They might be spreading gossip. They might have gotten it wrong. You want to get it right? He says you don't, you don't go to the people on the street. You want to get it right? You go to this person who is officially set apart, who's been told what to say, who has an authority to say it, who speaks it with authority. You get the message, as it were, from the horse's mouth once removed. You get it from the ruler through his official herald. That's, what's the, that's what the word is that is used here. To herald is not merely to speak. It is not merely to communicate. To herald or to kerux is to proclaim with a loud voice and with an authoritative character. It is to speak with an authoritative character because you're speaking under an official commission. Now, obviously, this word could be greatly abused. The word is not, you're not to take this and say, well, preacher's supposed to all yell. He's supposed to proclaim with a loud voice. No, that's not the idea. But there is the idea of authoritative, definitive proclamation here. This guy's an official herald. He's not somebody that's come into, town, into a town meeting to discuss what the ruler, he's going to tell everybody what the ruler has to say. He's a kerux. He's a preacher. He's a herald. He's a proclaimer. He's not a discusser. He's not a sharer. He is a proclaimer. The passage uses that word. It is referring to official ministers of the gospel, not to all the Lord's people. All the Lord's people should be spreading the gospel. All the Lord's people may and ought to be using their lips to proclaim and publish the message. Of course, that's not what this passage is talking about. It's referring to those who are official heralds, it, the word that, we're, that is used here, now don't accuse me of beating a dead horse or making a tempest in a teapot. There's an important implication to this. So bear with me through, through some technicalities. The word is used 62 times in the New Testament. In one place, the meaning is uncertain. In five places, it's used in the Gospels to refer to people that were miraculously healed and they couldn't contain themselves. They were miraculously healed. In four cases, they were told not to tell anyone. They went and preached it everywhere. And in one case, they were told to do it. They just, they couldn't contain themselves. They'd, they'd been healed. They had, to, they had to proclaim it everywhere. In the other times, in the other 56 times, the word is used in reference to the apostles or to those that have been officially set aside for the preaching of the gospel. Every place where the apostle Paul uses the word, it is used in this official sense of an official herald of a kerux. The word does not refer to all the things which God's people are to perform. 
The word does not refer to witnessing. The word does not refer to sharing. It does not refer to talking. It does not refer to Socratic teaching. It refers to the formal act of authoritative declarations. Now, there are other words in the New Testament which are used, in some cases, lavishly to describe these other ways to communicate the gospel. The Greek word laleo means to talk, and the people of God are to laleo the gospel. There's a talk about the gospel. There's another word, uh, dialegome, which means to dialogue, to argue, to have a back-and-forth reciprocal uh, argument in, in a holy sense. Well, the people of God are to do that. We're to have reasons for our faith. We're to be able to, in a give-and-take exchange, to dialogue about the gospel. Another Greek word that is used is the word that we translate to evangelize. Euangelizo, uh, to evangelize. Well, we're, all the people of God are supposed to do that. We're supposed to talk about the gospel. We're supposed to bring the gospel. We're supposed to share the gospel with people. None of those words are used here. The word that is used here is in reference to official proclaimers, official proclaimers of the gospel. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, when the persecution came upon the church in, in Acts in Jerusalem, it says that they were scattered everywhere. And in the King James, it says they went everywhere preaching the gospel. That's a bad translation. They went everywhere spreading the gospel. But the word that is used here is not the word that is used in Acts chapter 8. They weren't all official proclaimers of the gospel. There are all sorts of people, some illiterate, some not illiterate, some able to speak, some able to, only able to stammer. They were not official proclaimers. They were the people of God, the saints. And they were so full of, of the truth that they knew that wherever they went, they talked about the gospel. But it isn't that they preached the gospel in the official heralding sense that is spoken of in this and so many other passages. The emphasis which Paul is making in this passage is upon the necessity of preachers who are specifically set aside for the work of preaching. How will they call upon the name of the Lord if they do not believe? How will they believe unless the Lord touches them? How will they believe unless the Lord speaks to them? How will they have the Lord speak to them unless an official herald brings the gospel to them? Now, does this mean that nobody's ever saved unless they hear the voice of an official herald? Of course not. It doesn't mean that. Of course it doesn't mean that. You, it's, it's a wonderful thing how God saves his people. I may have told you this story once. I had a teacher once that, that picked a tract out of the gutter and read it and was converted. Well, there's all kinds of ways that God saves his people. The word is always in there somewhere. I'm not, the, Paul is not saying, and I wouldn't want anyone to go away thinking, oh, Pastor Fisher said that if you don't ever hear a, an official preacher of the gospel, there's no hope. No. But don't miss what Paul says. Don't miss what Paul says. Paul is drawing attention to the fact that generally the way that lost people hear Christ is through official heralds of the gospel. Now, there's more that we could say. We'll just pass this for now. The third thing to notice is that these preachers must be sent, and that's the final part of Paul's logical deduction. Preachers must be sent. How can they call unless they believe? How can they believe unless Jesus speaks to them? How can Jesus speak to them unless a preacher goes and talks to them in his name? And how can that happen unless somebody sends them? That's the point that Paul's coming to. That's the end of the deductive reasoning. That's where he wants you to stop. That's where the weight is. If you believe in the gospel of grace through faith, you've got to send preachers to people. Now, how are preachers sent, and by whom are preachers sent? And again, it's a shame that this even has to be addressed, but it's only because of the abnormality of our times. We live in such a mixed-up Christian world. There's so little attention given to the Scriptures. Everybody's going about doing what's right in their own eyes. God is so merciful. He's blessing many people that are doing what's right in their own eyes. That doesn't mean, though, there's not a right way to proceed. How are men to be sent? Well, they're to be sent by Christ. They're to be sent by Christ's church. Paul is a perfect example of what he himself teaches. How was Paul sent? Well, you know his statements. The Lord Jesus Christ commissioned Paul. 
He says that repeatedly in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, other places. Paul is very much aware this was an incentive to him. The Lord Jesus had commissioned him to go and to preach the gospel. He was a kerux. He was an official herald of the Lord Jesus Christ's gospel. But the Apostle Paul's experience was that he, that that calling was in the context of the Lord's church. Paul had this calling by Christ, but he didn't go preach, did he? The first thing he did was go to, not the first thing, but when he felt like he was ready to do something, the first thing he did after learning from Jesus was to go to the church in Jerusalem and be authorized. The first thing he did was to go and to check himself out to make sure that he didn't get things wrong, that he hadn't misunderstood the gospel. So he went to those that are of repute in the church, to Peter and the others. He didn't engage in any ministry, even though for several years he knew that Jesus had commissioned him until he had the approval of the church. Later, when the Lord, Je- when the, when the Lord Jesus was ready to set the Apostle Paul off into missionary services, what happened? Paul didn't just say, okay, I'm ready, I'm going to go. No, Paul was in Antioch. And the church recognized him to be sent forth as a missionary with Barnabas. And they laid their hands on him and prayed on him, sent him forth. And what happened after that? The apostle Paul was submissive to the church. He reported to the church. When there was an issue of conflict in reference to his preaching, in Acts chapter 15, he didn't just sit back, listen, buddy, I had this call from the Lord Jesus Christ. I am an apostle. You knuckle your minds down and believe what I know. He didn't do that. He said, we'll appeal to the church. And the mighty apostle Paul went with some others that were surely his inferiors to the church in Jerusalem and listened to James, a non-apostle, give the declaration that would govern what they did on the matter. When Paul would raise money for the famine relief, how did he do that? He didn't say, well, I'm an apostle. No, no, no. He did this through the church, and everything was done by Paul with men that were esteemed in the church because Paul was conscious that his commission in sending, though from the Lord Jesus Christ, was in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ's church. Who's to send these preachers? Is it to be like it usually is today, that some man feels this inward constraint, says, the Lord's called me, the Lord's going to send me, I'm gone into the ministry? Is that the way it's supposed to be? This passage is not making reference to what God does. This passage is making reference to what men must do. We must send men. The church must send men. It is the church's duty to send these official proclaimers into the world. One of the blights of the modern-day church is all the buffoons and self-sent men that are in the ministry, that are heralding in Jesus' name, have no business being there. Why? Nobody sent them that had any sense. No church that was governed by biblical principles examined their life and examined their doctrine and examined their methods and sent them. And they have taken the place of the authoritative herald without being sent by the authoritative representative of Christ in the world, which is his church. It's a good lesson to us, the Apostle Paul. If there's any man in the world that would have ever had right to proclaim his autonomy as one sent from God, it was the Apostle Paul. He didn't. He openly proclaimed that he was sent by Christ in the context of the church's recognition and setting him apart. And to the end of his life, he was accountable to the church. What are the implications of all of this? Well, there are far more than we can go into this morning. One of the implications, though, of Paul's statement is that we must highly value preaching as defined by this particular passage and word. We must highly value it. It is no news to you who are sensitive to the Christian world that we live in a day when preaching is denigrated. Preaching is seen as an outmoded means of communication. Preaching is seen as something that was appropriate for the first century when they didn't have television, didn't have all this stuff clever teaching techniques and the cool communications of television and video and multimedia presentations and musical presentations are being set forth as the most effective way to reach people with the gospel. God has ordained preaching. 
The technical things that are at our disposal were not available in the first century. But in principle, most of what is available to us was available in the first century. Music was available. Gimmicks were available. Circuses were available. Muscle men were available. Now, not the high-tech stuff, not the television cameras, not the booming uh, amplifiers, but in principle, all of that stuff was available in the first century. Jesus, or Paul rather, does not say, how shall they believe unless they hear Jesus' voice? And how shall they hear Jesus' voice unless some rock concert beats it into their head? He didn't say, how shall they believe and how shall they hear Jesus' voice? And how shall they hear Jesus' voice unless someone sits down and has a discussion with them? Now, I'm against the rock concert beating it into their head. I'm not against the discussion. I'm simply trying to make the point that those are not the things that he appeals to. He appeals to preaching. And we could spend a long time thinking about why it is preaching as opposed to something else which God ordained. That's not my purpose this morning. It's just a simple fact that God has ordained preaching. We, therefore, must highly esteem it. We live in a day when public speaking is, is not highly esteemed. Our president can hardly put words together. The greatest men in our country can't speak. And so we live in a, in a time where public speaking is, is lowly esteemed. But if we're to have a, a Christian perspective, if we're to have a Christian perspective with highly esteemed preaching, why? Why? Because you're, you're subjected to the bombastment of these guys who have... No. No, because Jesus says that it's through that that he communicates himself. I'm going to stop. There are lots of things that I'd like to say to the point. You have to make your own applications. But deal with this text. We are confronted with so many things in the so-called Christian world that would not meet the qualifications of this text. And they seem so attractive. They're wrong because they're not according to the scriptures. Now, it doesn't mean, I've tried to say this before, it does not mean that there's no other way to spread the gospel than official preaching. Of course it does not mean that. But the primary way is for men to be qualified, set aside by the church, and sent to do this work of properly proclaiming the gospel. The second implication of this is what was said earlier, and that is that we as a congregation, whatever the rest of the Christian world is doing, we as a congregation must take this seriously. And that means many things. It means that if we care for lost people, among other things, we will be concerned that the Lord raises up more men to preach his word in the world. Now, lots of things we'll be concerned about if we're concerned for lost men. Lots of things. We'll start writing more letters to our, the people we can write to. We'll start praying more for the people that are in the circle of our knowledge. We'll start loving more. We'll start. But if we're really concerned, one of the things that we must do is, in the corporate level is we must be concerned to send men into the work of preaching the gospel. What does that mean? Well, number one, it means we must pray for them. It hardly ever comes up in our prayer meeting. I take the fault for that. I don't bring it before you. But it should be coming up in our prayer meetings. You remember Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because he saw the multitudes as sheep who had no shepherds. They're being, they're being torn up and hurt because they had no shepherds. And he, he declares to his disciples that you must pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he was in laborers into the harvest. He's not there telling you to pray for more Christian people to have a greater influence in the world. He's talking specifically about men that will be shepherds to those people who have no shepherds. Official proclaimers, official heralds, ministers of the gospel is pray for them. Number two, we must seek to recognize them according to the biblical patterns. I referred earlier to how many embarrassments there are standing up preaching in the world today. Buffoons and fools and people that are ridiculous and it's shameful. You just are embarrassed. You don't want to be identified with them. How does that happen? It's because somewhere along the line, no one's giving any attention to the biblical qualifications for those who preach Christ's gospel. The Bible is very clear about moral qualifications, about character qualifications, about doctrinal qualifications, 
about qualifications in terms of the ability to convince the gainsayer. The Bible is very clear about qualifications. If the qualifications would be applied to those who publicly proclaim Jesus' name, most of them would be cut off. How does that happen? Well, somewhere along the line, people aren't serious about God's statements. We must be. We must pray for such people to be raised up. We must be determined to examine people in the light of these qualifications. In the fourth place, we must send them. We must support them. We must give money to them. We must free them so they can give themselves wholly to this work of proclaiming. And a fourth thing, and I'm not a prophet speaking to any of you men here when I say this. It's a general statement, all right? I'm not feral speaking to Calvin. But it ought to be that there would be some men from among us who would stand up and say, oh, go. We stress a great deal in this church, and I think it's a biblical stress, that most of God's people are called to glorify God in the context of an ordinary calling. That the ordinary calling of being a secretary or a teacher or an engineer or a doctor or a plumber or whatever, the ordinary calling is no lower than the man who preaches the gospel. That's true, and we believe by this idea that it's a better thing to be involved in the full-time ministry. But that as a given, some men should step forth and say, I would give my life to preaching Christ's gospel. And I appeal to some of you men. I don't want any of you to, to take this improperly. But those who have ability, those whose circumstances indicate God's providential guidance, some of you give thought. Don't neglect this question. Some of you that are young and thinking about what God might have you to do, I don't want you to think I ought to be a pastor. No, no. But I want you to say in the midst of all the things you might do, does the Lord want me to be one of his heralds? We need such men in Christ's church. Don't be dis distracted by the fools that are in the ministry. Don't say, I don't want to do that because look at what... No, no. You stand up, you come, and you say, I will, by God's grace, be what he's called ministers to be. Does anyone here believe in the, in the syllogism that the Apostle Paul sets forth? If you believe it, then don't be satisfied simply to pray for people's salvations and don't be satisfied simply to witness with your mouth. Be satisfied only when you see the Lord raising up more heralds to go into a very perverse and mixed-up world and proclaim the Word of God in all of its clarity. Well, again, our time is, is gone. May the Lord help us to be ever more conformed to the teachings of the Scriptures. And may the security and certainty and hope that should be ours because of the gospel of grace, may that flood our souls. Let us stand together and pray and be dismissed. Our great God and Father, again, as on other occasions, we thank you for the scriptures. And many of us would quickly say how... how many areas of the scriptures we fail to comprehend and what large areas of, of ignorance that we have and we are ashamed to admit this. But we nonetheless thank you for them and it is our desire to know them better and to be more and more obedient to them. We pray that you would please would relieve us from every false understanding of the Bible, that you would give us grace to want to submit to all things, that you would keep us from resisting you you would help us, Father, help us to truly be governed by the Scriptures. We plead with you for all of your people in this room that you would help us to delight in the gospel of grace, that you would give to us all certainty and security, that we'd have a clear view of everything that Jesus has done, and that we would know that on the basis of that we shall surely be saved. And we plead with you also for the ones in the assembly this morning who are not Christians. Father, we pray that you would please press it upon their mind and make them to not be able to forget that you are the Lord of all and that you are rich in mercy to all that call upon you. Please give some of them hope in you. Please go to them and remove their fears of death and hell 
and replace those fears by faith in Christ. Please enable them to see that you are rich to those that would confess you and believe you and obey you. We ask, Father, that in terms of this last section, we pray that you would, in a sense, cleanse the world of those men that should not speak, who do speak in your name. And we pray that you would raise up men, men that would be heralds, who would be faithful shepherds, who would meet the standards, who would bring glory and praise to you in the earth. We long that more people in the world would hear sound preaching and that therein they would hear Jesus' voice. Please, please in a broad sense make this to be so in the world. Please use us as one congregation to contribute to that great work. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.